listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Hello, everyone. This week, we have one of my favorite returning guests, occupational therapist Maud LaRue, who runs a Total Approach in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania where I was supposed to go a few weeks ago, but of course with the shutdown and the border being closed, it's been a while since I've seen you, Maud, so it's nice to have you on Zoom today. It, it kind of feels strange that I'm not seeing you face to face, so same likewise here. Yeah, um, today Maud is going to discuss attention and executive function. So. Um, and, and also, um, you will be able to see everything we're discussing at affectautism.com. So what really spurred me onto this piece is because lately I've been really investigating the whole attention piece for my new ADHD program that we launched just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I was looking at those pieces and, of course, looking at how it overlays into autism, since that's a major part of the work that we do. Um, and I started realizing that the same executive functions that is difficult for kids with ADHD is as difficult for kids with autism, but with a slightly even more deeper caveat. And this is that... And can ADHD, I just, just say ADHD, attention? Uh, attention, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Thank you. Okay. So sorry about that. I just I think everybody knows my lingo by now, right? So... Um, um, and what I, you know, what really is interesting is that um, we're in other diagnostic categories, such as ADHD, executive function plays a secondary role. For autism, executive functions becomes a primary deficit. The older they get, the more mature, the more they develop. <clears throat> now, of course, executive is a developmental skill, executive functions. Now, just for the audience sake, executive functions could be anything from organizational skill to um, being goal persistent, to um, being able to set your goals and make sure that you make them in a timely manner, that you start tasks, that you complete tasks in a timely manner, that you're able to remember to take this paper home to mommy or take what you did at home and bring it back to school in a timely manner. Um, so all of those pieces, in, inhibiting your emotions is a standard um, executive piece. And we know how that can go in, in the category of autism. So um, the whole impulsivity piece is a big overlap also between autism and other diagnostic categories um, in many different profiles. But of course, just like everything else in ASD, everything is far more complex. Everything is far more um, extensive on a large continuum of differences. Um, but what we find from even high-functioning autism to autism um, that is more 
profoundly impacting their life skills is that the um, is that executive function is pervasive. It's a pervasive difficulty. In order to have executive functions, I have to realize that I need a self to organize. Um, so if I don't have a core self, if I don't develop that self-identity piece and my impact on my environment, it's incredibly hard for me to develop executive functioning skills. And where it becomes a huge issue is that when we go to school, and school expects any student to even just have it. I mean, it's not taught. We just expect them to have it. And by the way, developmentally speaking, we should have most executive functions available by the age of four. And then we keep refining them, usually till about around about the age of 22, 24. That's why we say college students aren't quite human yet. You know, they need that little extra piece of growth in that area. And it has to do with the DLPFC pathway, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex pathway in the brain, which is my executive highway. So all through life, you work on it basically very much in the beginning part of life until the age of four, refine until the age of 22, and then even until the age of 60, we can still make changes in executive. So there's hope for everyone. Okay. And that's um, in, in neurotypicals. Yeah, that's and in neurotypicals. In so neuro if you work with ASD, then everything is, of course, extended out even further. But it is possible, everyone. You know, I want to give people hope today um, to think about executive in a different light. Number one, don't think that executive is just going to happen. Number two, um, don't think that because your child doesn't have functional foundational levels that they will never be able to reach the executive. Number three, don't think that, um, that there is no way that you can actually teach a child with ASD executive functioning skill because there's such a core identity piece. Yes, you can. We've seen that over and over. It just looks differently in different cases. Um, and what's in some cases that we've worked with, executive happens like in a single file, right? That, um, and what I mean with that is that the child learns maybe to, to write um, a paragraph, okay? So they learn to write that paragraph and they learn to understand that after I'm done, I have to let the teacher know that I'm done. And that's an executive skill. Um, and knowing that sequential order of where things take place and they can learn that in a fashion of, when I do this, this is step one, two, three, and four. That in essence is their pragmatic skill for executive function. Um, but it's not the flexibility, of course, that you have in the typical development that, you know, sometimes I raise my hand to call the teacher. Other times I sort of realize she only wants to see it tomorrow. So I pack my book away when I'm done. So I make these decisions on the fly. That's what typical development, but it doesn't mean that you can't also get the other kind of executive in a very sequential planned way that the child can actually become fully functional once they understand those sequences. So part of this, this I don't know, if I, am I going too far now? Well, um, I just wanted to pause and ask where in the functional emotional developmental capacities laid out in the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, DIR model or DIR floor time, 
does executive function fall? Is that sort of towards the sixth capacity of being it's abstract, having logical fourth, thinking? From the fourth capacity. Okay. The so fourth capacity. Which we're not supposed shared, to do by four. Shared so problem solving. Yeah. As, exactly, Daria. Sorry, I've interrupted you there. That's kind That's of okay. <laughs> but the, um, yes. So when you're doing four and you're developing into the theory of mind piece where you're standing in somebody else's shoes and you're starting to work on that cognitive empathy into emotional empathy, that's when you start to be able to sort of hone into the area of executive function. But yes, by the age of four, when you have level six with logical thinking, that's when it's more robust available in typical development. So, and, um, and just to step in for a second, we have done podcasts before, both on theory of mind and on impulsivity. So I will put links to those past podcasts that we did at affectautism.com in today's blog post. Great, great. And, and maybe also just, you know, um, right before we started recording, we talked about a research study that I think is really important for parents because parents often ask, what, what can I do? What can I, I know you're doing the work there at the office, but what can I do, right? Now, besides of the fact, of course, that we want them to do floor time at home. Yes, mommies and daddies, we want floor time at home. The um, one thing that is becoming very clear in research now is that I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before, Time is not a good thing for me. I don't remember exactly when the research came out, but clearly what's happening now is that they say that parents who mentalize their children, and what we mean by that is that from a baby, you're saying to your baby, oh, you're so frustrated right now. Oh, oh, you are so mad, right? And you're basically voicing in your nice cooey mommy way, you're cooing back to them their emotion. What the research has found when they check out these babies at the age of four, those four-year-olds have much better executive functioning skills than others. Well, first of all, gesundheit to your husband, who's just sneezed in the background. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's so interesting because uh, I did a podcast just a few weeks ago with Dr. Ira Glavinsky and he talks about the concept of mentalization in, in terms of regulation. And, and we had discussed that in a previous con in a previous podcast, but we were talking about labeling and training parents to label emotions in their children from infancy. And he's trying to put together a training program for parents around interoception. So focusing on what you're feeling inside. Oh, yeah. And so you hearing you echo what he said, is is very reassuring to know that you know putting a label on what we see although it is a cognitive activity it can lead further down the road to the understanding of that visceral experience that's right and the the foundation of executive is co-regulation that's what everybody in the dr world has always said but it's also what people like Stuart Shanker, I mean, who had wrote his book on self-reg. And there's just all this other regulation research that's coming through from the mental health field in attachment disorders and those pieces where regulation is key, key, key. And if, and regulation, I think we talked about it earlier before at one other podcast, has got different phases. You've got the yes. basic regulation that comes with a co-regulation and then enters into self-regulation of the different sensory systems, 
then you have the timing regulation and then you have the executive regulation when I can pace myself through my test, right? So regulation has got those layers um, and those layers are incredibly powerful in actually getting to the executive functioning skill. Um, and now with bringing up what, um, what they were saying about interception and the way that the insula in the brain picks up the nonverbal cues of others. And um, we also know the Porges um, polyvagal theory that talks about this whole, you know, fight, flight and, and those pieces and the safety mechanism that comes from that. The research is more and more and more clear that executive functioning as practical and as linear as it looks is driven by emotional affective intent of the first year of life. Wow. <laughs> It's incredible. And so, and that statement is probably a mode statement, but it's a mode statement I've made from looking at all these different research studies as I, you know, give classes on my academy and I have to make sure that it's science-based, right? And I'm looking at all these studies and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, everything, every time points down to what Greenspan said, the affect I have is this hypothesis. And he said mm -hmm. it how many years ago. Um, and it, in other fields are getting to that same place. It's amazing how it takes, they do say it often takes 20 years for something to be accepted in the larger society and, and it has been about 20 years. And um, there's a number of podcasts on my website now on regulation. Maud mentioned the, the regulation through the developmental stages that we talked about. And you mentioned the affect diathesis hypothesis, which is a mouthful. That was my very first blog post at affectautism.com was about that which is um, a mouthful to say that, you know, connecting affect with, with uh, motor planning and intent and all of that is, is a challenge with um, autistic kids. And that's where we're working from a young age. But I think I, I always need to make the distinction, um, the more self-advocate information I read, I always wanna make this distinction, uh, we, we can't forget the role of the parent in this because if you have a child and you don't know how to co-regulate and you're frustrated because you're not looking at the why behind the behavior, but you're trying to get compliance, then that child's process is going to be frustrated to the point where when they're older, they could have more challenges with a lot of these things that we're talking about, executive function and so on. The parents have a role in that from the start by letting the child be and following the child's emotional intent and not putting all these demands on the child when their sensory systems don't allow and, and their behavior um, is indicative of something that is out of their control. Where, whereas a lot of parents sometimes tend to think, and especially in schools, think that children are doing something on purpose to be disruptive and they're not. So. I just wanted to make that clear that mm -hmm. if we focus on regulation, it's not just the kid, it's whoever's with the child. That is, we are supporting the child. And if, if these children are not supported, um, that is a big issue as they continue on. That's right. So to, the, to, the, to the point of trauma and post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's more research gonna come up on that piece because there's more and more adults of, with, um, on the spectrum that's speaking out about the trauma, how they experience their early life experiences and the demands placed on them. 
Um, and you know, no matter where you go, ASD or wherever, you and I, you know, our first place of being is feeling safe. What does that mean? What does it mean for you as a parent? What does that mean for you as a for the child that you have and that you're starting to raise or you've been raising? What does safety mean to them? And how operable, how executive can you be if my safety system feels violated? And if I don't get why you're trying me to do, to get to do what you want me to do, how, how, much would you feel comfortable just simply doing something but you don't understand why right that so, goes back to that meaning making piece oh absolutely absolutely and it starts again and the the and the piece of what you said is so important daria co-regulation comes before self-regulation mm -hmm. if we don't get self-regulation we must revisit co-regulation and that means co-regulation for me as a therapist with a child for you as a parent with a child for the teacher with a child we have that obligation and we must absolutely stop this nonsense that the child is supposed to adhere to my what i think is appropriate simply because i do know better because i am the professional Really, the child doesn't care anything about you being a professional. What they're relating to is that intuitiveness between the two persons and how each person allows the other one to be in that space. And if I don't feel like you can allow me to be, guess what? I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. right? so, so that piece is a, is a core piece um, of, of setting up the stage for both floor time DIR, but also for your executive piece. And again, as we said, you know, Greenspan had those pieces. He had those pieces from that, from the get go. But I want to also point out before we end um, our time together, Daria, this whole piece of attention. I don't think I'll meet any IEP team that doesn't put attention at some space in the educational IEP process. Um, and everybody wants more attention, more available attention from the child in order to learn. And yes, you do need attention and attention is an executive skill. But if we look at many, many pieces of research now, but I'll, I'll point you to Posner, who wrote a book, Images of the Mind, many years now. But he probably set me up the first time to understand where does attention really come from? And yes, true to whatever else we've been saying, it starts with how my body can register information, which of course is gonna impact on regulation. So what he said was, is that he has about seven stages and I sort of modified it <laughs> into four stages for me to, to be able to train it in an eloquent way since I'm not a researcher like he is. So what the phases are, you first have to register the stimuli coming to you, what the teacher's saying or what the teacher's showing. Then you have to um, orient your system towards that stimulus. So it's a physical inner response, almost with intrinsic motivation that, that, turns, that turns on. And then basically from there, you have to process the information to the prefrontal cortex. So there's a processing speed and rhythm of speed involved. 
then once it's at the prefrontal cortex, then I can analyze the stimulus that I've listened to, either the words or the visual or wherever I am. So he's got more stages in between, but basically those are the four steps that you have to reach in order to pay attention. And so many educators, therapists make the mistake of thinking that yes, um, we have to start at, let's extend the attention from five minutes to seven minutes, from seven minutes to nine minutes, right? Which is a good idea, right? But what's the part that's gonna get them there? What's gonna get them there is level one and two. And she's talking about the first two uh, functional, emotional, developmental capacities yeah. in the model, which first is regulation and, and interest in the world, being able to share attention with another person and then engaging and relating with another person, that gleam in the eye. When you talked about intrin intrinsic motivation, they have to be interested to pay attention in the first place. And if you're talking about something they don't care about, um, then why, why would they pay attention. If we think about ourselves and our favorite teacher in school or our favorite class, it was because we were intrinsically motivated to pay attention, probably through a good relationship that we had with our teacher, which is the other piece of our uh, DIR model, the R for relationship. You are so correct. Um, I often wonder why Daria has these podcasts with other people. She can probably just do this podcast <laughs> itself, you know. Um, the, um, but, but, you know, the other thing is you said it has to register in the prefrontal cortex. And, and um, I've heard from Dr. Neufeld, who's a developmental psychologist, he talks about the neuroscience he follows, um, that you're not even using your prefrontal cortex as a young child or a toddler. You are feeling emotions one at a time in bursts through your limbic system and this goes for neurotypical kids too so you're feeling a thing and you know he describes the child who wants to go on the roller coaster so bad so you wait in line for three hours or i might be exaggerating but you wait forever and you get up to there and then the child says no 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 i don't want to go and then you go down back to the car annoyed and they say i want to go on the roller coaster <laughs> because <laughs> they can only hold that one emotion at a time i want to but i'm scared I want to, but I'm scared. It could be the same thing performing in a school play. Like, I want to be on stage with my friends, but I'm scared. And on people who fly on an airplane, I have a business trip to go on. I really want to go on it, but I'm terrified of flying. And until Dr. Neufeld calls the prefrontal cortex the mixing bowl, until you can mix those two feelings together and say, I love my sister but I also have hits for her and she made me mad and I want to smack her, but I love her at the same time. Unless you can mix those two together, you aren't at that developmental stage yet. Mm, that's true. That is so true. And it takes you away from that sort of that polar piece, you know, I'm either this or either that. And what we try and do in four, five, and six, especially five and six, is come more to the assertive middle, you know, so that you can flex either way when you need to. Um, and that's so it's often so hard for kids who don't get to that level of thinking and feeling. Well, um, in the same way that you say to label what they're feeling and their emotions, I've tried to do that with my son. Like I'll say, he'll say, no school, no school. Meanwhile, when I pick him up, he's had the best time ever. And he doesn't want to leave. I say, I know you, part of you really wants to stay home and play video games, but part of you loves being with your friends too. So sort of cognitively label that experience, even though he's not yet 
assimilating them, although we might be starting to. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's such an important thing. And as long as people don't, like you obviously have that down, is that understand that once they witness an emotional piece in a child's life, that there's certain, there's different levels, you know, in order for me to become executive in inhibiting my emotional frustration, I need to understand what frustration is in my body. And before I understand what frustration feels like in my body, I have to understand what the word frustration means. I have to understand what do I label it as? And that's the cognitive part. So there's everything in human behavior has got so many different levels of, of extrapolating um, the different pieces that may be an impactful piece in every individual a child that's on the ASD spectrum. So um, um, I think the, where I want to go with that is that when you have excellent attention and executive, you can also be extremely flexible. And one of the biggest things that we hear about from parents when they come to us, he's so rigid. He's so rigid. It's like everything has to be his way and no other highway, right? That rigidity is a red flag that tells you, I don't have the flexibility in my system to change the way you want me to, even if I understand what you want me to do. And that's the difference between the cognitive realm and the actual um, practical, physical, emotional realm. Um, and how do you put them, those two together? Um, and that's really what creates the executive mind. So it's complex. It's complex. But if we understand this piece, we can stop putting down goals in an IEP that says, okay, I'm going to extend the child's attention simply by giving them a longer task to do. Right, right. That's that, and that's what they do. Most therapists, most teachers do that. Well, okay, we'll have him do math for five minutes today. And then tomorrow we'll ask him to do math for six minutes. Seven, let's increase the time because the task is going to create that attention and engagement. No. What creates the attention is the regulation to the engagement coupled with that intrinsic motivation. That expands. So when Greenspan talks about expanding and stringing the circles, that is your prevention key to ADHD. That's your key. The longer you can string the circles and keep the engagement going, in a regulated way, the longer your child is going to pay attention. Key. Absolutely. And I think that goes for all of us, but it's so taken for granted with us that we, we find it so hard to do with our children on the spectrum. It's very hard. And, you know, and it, oh, it feels to the parent like, like they sort of back somewhere. You know, we're going back to an earlier phase of development and uh, we so want to look forward, right? But really, just look at yourself every day and just look at how much do you rely on your regulation system? You know, when I get up in the morning, usually it's five um, because really at five, nobody totally bothers me. I can get all my emails done. <laughs> and um, my first thing is I have a little one copper coffee machine in my study upstairs and I go and make my coffee. 
and I sit there with my cup of coffee and I open the email and I'm like, oh, it's 200 emails again. Okay. <laughs> and then I can deal with that 200 emails because I have my cup of coffee. And then pretty soon an hour goes by, whatever. And I'm like, okay, last one. And I'm ready to go for the shower and off my day starts again, right? We regulate ourselves by our intake, our food intake. We regulate ourselves by the amount of sleep we get last night. We regulate ourselves by the amount of physical exercise we get every day. We rely on regulation to see us through. So in our minds, we have to take away the notion that we're going back to level one and two mm -hmm. and take that out of the equation because that puts the parent in the frame of, boy, we're still working on regulation. We're still working. It feels to the parent like we're not going forward fast enough. But what the parent may be missing is that as you're working on this foundational level, suddenly the child pipes up and gives you a number that he never said before. Suddenly they start piping up three or two words that they've never said before. Because regulation will set the key in motion for the child to naturally gravitate towards that newer learning cycle instead of avoiding it. The reason children avoid new learning is because they don't feel regulated enough to counter it. They feel like it's going to dysregulate them and they go for safety, comfort zone, security, and into avoidance. And so, that safety and security is often whatever comforted them at an earlier developmental stage. Absolutely. As you've said before in podcasts that we've done. That's fine. Yeah. fine. I remember a parent, she came to me, um, uh, the child was 16. He's now been with us for a while. He's just a beautiful, beautiful young man. Um, and he's come so far. But I remember we were a year into therapy with them. Um, and he's profound on the profound end of the spectrum. We were a year into therapy when he... Um, started watching Barney again. And she was like, Ma, really? I mean, he's 16, okay? <laughs> At the time, probably 17, somewhere there. And um, I said, yep, yep, it's okay. He's not going back in order to regress into an earlier stage of development. He's revisiting what he saw, heard in his long-term memory and making meaning of those pieces more with the brain he has now. So important to get that. So important not to take that Barney away. He has to make sense of these pieces. You know, about, um, I don't know how many months later this was, because it's quite a while ago, but the, um, they were doing dishes mom and mom and son we started giving him some life skills and things that he could do and he was drying off and mom was saying commenting on how much he missed his sister who was away at college and about 20 minutes passed of real silence and he said i miss denise oh he doesn't talk much this boy what he was getting was so profound you know, a mom, of course, emailed me right away. That this happened. Mm -hmm. What does this mean, Maud? What does this mean? <laughs> right? Because our daughter's name is not Denise. Denise, oh. was a, Denise was a therapist that worked with mm -hmm. him two years before. Okay. And they hit it off so well, right? And so he had to grasp what she meant with mm -hmm. missing her daughter. 
associated and translated that in his mind to somebody that he missed in his life. It was incredible. What a breakthrough moment. And they gave it 20 minutes to get through. Mm -hmm. 20 minutes to sift through those little files in his brain. And, and how much do you have to understand of your own affect, of your own emotional, to be able to go there and to say that? I, I mean, I read the email, I cried. I cried. I remember the first day that he put himself in the sand tray. Um, we do sand play therapy. Um, adjacent to the DR therapy and he put himself upside down in the tray with his head swallowed by the sand and he made the legs walk and he just did that and he did that for quite a while and I thought about what is he trying to say and he just looked at us and looked down and what he was trying to say was this is the way I sometimes feel that I, pull, I feel like my eyes my ears my my head's in the sand, but I'm still walking this earth. I still have to walk. Right? And how deep, how profound those pieces could be. Um, I've, I've learned never to underestimate what, what the capability is of that brain that's sometimes so locked behind the behavior. Um, anyway, we regress digressing away from executive <laughs> and attention. But I think it all relates because once I become more executive too, and I have more flexibility, I can also negotiate some of those pieces that was so fearsome or so threatening before, I can start to feel I can take the risk of doing it without becoming out of control and dysregulated. So regulation, again, is simply the foundation for so many different pieces from executive to emotional inhibition to attention um, just a wonderful piece to, to, to discover in your child. Um, never, ever, mom and dad, never, ever. Don't and really, child's I going mean, back. regulation is just another word for feeling safe and safety. That's right. And we can see that now happening in 2020. People are not feeling safe. There's half the West Coast is on fire, uh, virus everywhere. People are scared. And when you don't feel safe, how can you function at your capacity? You That's can't. Right. That's um, right. And it's, it's really no different. So just, I think it's very hard for us to understand and empathize how unsafe our children feel much of the time due to whether it's their sensory, um, sensory challenges that they might have or differences that they might have or whatever it is. It's hard for us to understand because we don't feel that. Um, but when you see that anxiety in your child, you know that there's something that's making them not feel totally safe. That's right. And just to focus on that. That's right. And, and you know, it just, you know, we can even take that, that word anxiety is such an important word because many times kids with ASD don't show us the emotion on their faces. So Dr. Poor just talked about that as well in, right. in, the conference presentation I saw in March at the Rebecca school conference, right. he talked about seeing a lot of different things from the face through polyvagal theory. That's right. And so if, if they don't show, then we don't even realize how much anxiety is underneath. I, I try and help my parents understand that the more neutral the facial affect is, the more anxious or anxiety lurks underneath. 
If we can understand that piece, we will tread more lightly as to what we demand and when we demand it. And please don't get me wrong. Of course, we must demand of, of the kids. Of course, we must have that balance between. Yes, you have to adhere to some rules. Yes, you have to. We don't say these words at school, do we? We have to have certain pieces that we have to lay down and they have to have the limits. But limit setting in itself, which is, by the way, something we work on in level five, an EPDC five of the DR levels, is also a executive lineup understanding what my limits are and standing what somebody else's boundaries are. Um, and those pieces, you can only understand where my limits are and somebody else's limits are if I am self-regulated. So don't wish the self-regulation away. Wish it in. Wish for it to become integrated. Because that piece holds the key to so many different pieces. If I was a speech pathologist, I could expound to you what my speech pathologist talks about in terms of just language and how much language relies on rhythm and co-regulation. Um, so we haven't even touched on that today. It's so okay. I have a few podcasts about it with, <laughs> with Jahan and with Amanda Bins. So, so we <laughs> all put the, the same language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's incredible what that does. So, and also to work on our own regulation because if we aren't regulated as parents, it's going to be really hard to co-regulate with our child. Right. We got to take care of ourselves. Um, and I say that with with therapists too. I'm very in tune with when my therapists start looking like they're going to burn out, you know, because it's just too much. Sometimes, you know, it gets to you, you need a break and you need to be able to give yourself that break. One of the things I always tell my mommies that I used to do is to arrange that monthly dinner date, that candlelight date where they're not talking about who's going to take the kid to school the next morning, where they talk about the things they talked about before they got married, right? Um, because we need that connection to keep us regulated. And connection drives the correction. Correction does not drive connection. You don't get connected because you've been corrected. You get corrected because you've connected. And Connect that piece, before you collect and connect before you direct, Dr. Nesbitt right. says. <laughs> That's right. And you made me think of uh, one last point. Um, you know, when you said he went and revisited Barney and watched Barney again. I mean, I can think of a million examples in my own life of songs I used to sing along to when I was a kid in the 70s. If I listen to the lyrics now, I'm like, oh my goodness, I was singing about sex and I was singing about all these things, but <laughs> I didn't know what the words meant. I was just a kid singing along with whoever it was, Neil Diamond or whatever was popular then that my parents had on the radio. Um, and then it could even be a show, like look at the cartoons that we watch with our kids. They're filled with adult jokes that go right over our kids' heads. Um, one, one quick example, I was at the dentist with my son for the first time since before the shutdown and I was like, whew, thankfully they had Sonic on the TV. So she was able to clean his teeth. It was great. He's watching Sonic. And the dentist and I are laughing at all the jokes in, in it. He said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a doctor. Of course, not a real doctor, just a PhD, but I'm a doctor. And so, of course, me and her are giggling because that's a silly joke that a child would never get. Mm -hmm. So there's always a re-experience of things that we had when we were developmentally and physically younger that we can revisit and oh, never realized that before. So there's always a new, a new set of lenses that you're 
looking through. That's right. And, and which, which also adds to your experience, experiential level that you have in your associative memory so that your next association of a next experience can then build on that previous and scaffold on that previous association with that same memory. Yeah, there's so many powerful things to the brain. I think we can talk forever on that. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a lot of great information about uh, executive function and, and attention. And of course, it all goes back to regulation. I have now quite a, quite a library of podcasts on regulation from different people and from um, coming from different angles. So the more I hear about it, the more I learn. And um, it's always wonderful to get your take on things. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Daria. Um, I just wish you all the best with the good work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. And everybody, you can find out more information at affectautism.com. You can look at the podcast with Maud LaRue on attention and executive function. I will put links to all of the different things we talked about, including interoception and polyvagal theory and all the regulation podcasts and past podcasts we've done. So do check it out. And we'll talk again soon, Maud. Right. Take care, Maya. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.